Welcome back to Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, the home of the Canucks. It's hour two of Canucks Hour, another Canucks Hour, bonus extended editions of the show all this week with myself and Canucks insider Thomas Drantz. Uh, again, we will be live in Whistler for training camp tomorrow on 10 to noon, so a little bit earlier in the day uh, from Whistler. When are you waking up? Uh, tomorrow? I don't know about when I'm waking up. I've been, I've been trying to I'm, – I'm road tripping up with Batch. Okay. Batch has to do a hit on the morning show, so we're trying to figure out logistics. Still get there in time. Yeah, we'll see. We'll make it all work. He'll stop in Britannia and and uh, yeah. and he'll do it in front of the mining museum. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Um, it, it was better because there was a while where I thought we were gonna have to be on the air at nine a.m. and I was worried about that. I was worried about that drive, but ten a.m. That's no problem. We can get up there yeah. in the morning. Uh, we'll, we'll do it just fine. Uh, Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota All Star Team. AvenueMachinery.ca and DouglasLakeEquipment.com, coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Of course, you can always uh, text in 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. All right, more uh, training camp preview coming up as well. Uh, but also, let's talk a little bit about what we heard more in-depth from JT Miller uh, when he spoke to the media at Rogers Arena earlier today. And, you know, we talked about Miller going even further and, and being uh, raising the bar higher than anyone else did today uh, and saying, you know, yeah, competing in the playoffs, that's the goal, but we also want to win a Stanley Cup. We don't just want to make the playoffs. We want to compete. We want to be successful there. I believe he said almost verbatim the goal should never be less than that, right? That should always be the overriding goal. Even if you don't think it's going to happen this year, that should be what you're building Amen. Towards. Amen, indeed. Great to hear from JT Miller. The other thing, there's a couple of other things that really stood out to me. Let's start with something we've heard previously from JT Miller, but I thought we got a lot more depth on it today, which is his focus and commitment to trying to be a, a more consistent 200-foot defensive two-way player, right? And he even said, you know, look, yeah, I got the big new deal, but I, I can't go I can't go out there and expect to improve on my point total last year. Like, he, re he recognized that. That's going to be really hard to do. I have to find other ways to be better and to help the team, and specifically that means, uh, you know, being more effective as a, as a 200-foot player. And I thought today we got the most kind of detail about what that looks like in his mind, right? And specifically him talking pretty openly, I thought about the difference going from playing in your own zone as a winger to playing as a as a center and what that means for him and how he's going to adjust to that. Well, it's really interesting. I need to still really crack into this data, and I will at some point, but Miller on the wing is a plus two-way piece. Like, he's a plus two-way piece. He's a driver. He's a driver on the wing. At center, to this point, he hasn't been. That's my that's my interpretation. It's a little hard to to pick apart the data, but when you look at his defensive metrics or his defensive impact, his two way impact in 2019-20, his first year in Vancouver, where he was exclusively a winger, although he took draws, mm -hmm. he was exclusively a winger. Um, you know, there's no question. There's no question he was a driver on that line with Pedersen and Besser. And over the last two years, as he's played more center, we've seen sort of a bit of a drop-off in, in terms of his two-way impact. That said, you know, and one thing I asked him about at length in the presser was, you know, what are you figuring out in terms of being a centerman? And he was talking more about playing with the puck in his own end. But the thing that I've noticed that's really different about Miller as a center versus as a winger offensively is as a, wing, as a center, 
he stops. He'll he'll slow down. Mm-hmm. He plays much more slowly with the puck as a centerman, and it works for him. Like, it works really well for him. You'll see he's such a threat offensively. Defenders have so much respect for his ability to carve them with puck movement that when he gets into that A-frame and just kind of stops up, it freezes people, and then he's just able to, you know, toss the puck around to a teammate, often for a really good scoring chance. But he plays far more slowly with the puck, and it's something that we saw a lot more in the last 40 games last year than we did for the first 60 games that he was a center between the 2021 and then the, the first half of last year. And, you know, I sort of tried to suggest to him, like, have you learned a bunch? Like, are you better playing as a center with the puck now? And then I kind of tried to frame it like, what do you have to learn there defensively? Because potentially, I'm not saying this is for sure, particularly because of where he is in terms of his age and in terms of his learning curve. But is there a chance that as he gets 100 games of NHL rep as a center or 150 games of reps as an NHL center that parts of the details of the two-way game, like we know that Miller is a conscientious two-way piece. Like we know that he's got the intelligence for it. He has the skill set to be a good 200-foot player. We don't have any question about that. We also have seen him be a really good 200-foot player on the wing. Right? Can he figure out some of are there details? Like, is it just a matter of experience? Is it just a matter of reps for him to level up as a defensive piece? You know, not something I'd call likely, but not something that I'm putting, you know, outside the realm of possibility either, based off of the growth that we've seen from him as an offensive player in the middle of the ice. So, well, you know, I, I just I thought his commentary on precisely what he needs to work on to get there was fascinating in that context because, you know, he's played center throughout his life, but in the NHL, certainly the five years before he came to Vancouver, he really was a winger exclusively. And, you know, he's still only like 100 games into playing as an everyday centerman in this league. It, it It wouldn't shock me at all. It shouldn't shock anyone at all if his evolution in that position isn't isn't complete yet. And it's the thing that struck me about what he had to say today is it wasn't really just platitudes, right? It wasn't, oh, you know, I just have, never to put, is I have to put the effort in. Yeah. You know, I got to be more conscientious. It's all about hard work. No, it's it always was, so detailed. It's it was, awesome. you know, I, I uh, y- your responsibilities are different as a winger. And sometimes I tend to watch the puck a little bit and I have to take care of these de- details differently. It was very specific. And again, that doesn't mean it's, you know, it's hard. It's hard to be a really good defensive center in the NHL while also producing at a high level. It's an extraordinarily valuable thing to be. It's not a guarantee that he's going to be able to pull off that improvement. But as you said, it's definitely something you shouldn't write off, right? It's not It's not impossible for him to show that improvement even this late in his career. And that's something that really stood out to me was, and again, it shouldn't be a surprise, as you said, that's JT Miller, he's really good at breaking down hockey. He's really good at examining his own game, talking about his own game. So it shouldn't come as a surprise, but it still stood out to me that there was that kind of specific detail that to him talking about he's it. He's also wearing his glasses during the thing, which makes everything he <laughs> says sound a little bit more professorial, right? All of a sudden, yeah. I feel like uh, I feel like I'm getting you know a breakdown on the tax code for my accountant. So I'm like, yes, mm-hmm. It's like uh, it's like when someone. It's like when someone talks about football in an English accent, you're like, yeah, 100%. Yeah, no doubt. (laughs) You must know what you're talking about. (laughs) Totally, a totally different level of credibility as a result of the specs. Uh, That's his Clark Kent outfit. Yeah, yeah. Puts Uh, puts on the glasses. Like, oh, you're a a totally different guy now. (laughs) We don't Um, even recognize him without them. (laughs) The other thing that um, 
that stood out to me from JT Miller. And I thought this one was really interesting. And I think, again, it's something that's refreshing to hear uh, from a player on the team, right? He's talking about, you know, why he's confident in it and, you know, more depth, right? But also he said the guys that aren't that young anymore, right? And I I thought that was a really interesting, I don't want to say a pointed comment, but again, something that's refreshing to hear where this is not the, the growth time for these guys anymore for Pedersen for Hughes this is the time to be no doubt about it high-end top of the lineup players and we've seen that from both of those guys in stretches you could throw Brock Besser in there as well obviously but I think that's just something that's really important to remember that we got to stop thinking about this team as a young and up up and coming team right and oh there's there's exciting things on the horizon if if x y and z goes right for these players and I think we have to start looking to those looking at those players as and holding them accountable to the standard of Star players who should be able to carry their team into the playoffs, who should be able to carry their team to being competitive in the playoffs. And, you know, he didn't elaborate and expound on it necessarily, but that's something that came across uh, from JT Miller for me as well. Yeah, we're not really a young – we're not that young a team anymore. The guys who are young – and obviously you still have Pud Colson and, and Holglander and stuff, and I understand that. But the best players on this team the are best no longer teams are not pre- that young. They're no longer pre-prime guys. No, in they're fact, in they're their prime. Smack dab in, in what I'd refer to as their statistical prime. So – yeah, I mean it's a good point. Here's where here's where I'd argue that it may be more pointed than you were willing to concede that it was. Connect that quote, these guys aren't that young anymore, to JT's reluctance, straight up refusal to address following that fateful loss in Pittsburgh, whether or not the entire team was buying in. Mm. If you connect those two comment those two bits of commentary over ten months. I think it becomes pretty pointed. I think it becomes like, we're ready now. There's no excuse. We're ready. Um, I thought that was, uh, I think there, I think it was pointed. You know, I think, I think we can say that fully, fully formed. That was pointed commentary from Vancouver's star. Well, and without even going back to that press conference that you're talking about months ago, you know, in that same answer, one of the things you said was, you know, we have to, we have to uh, establish our habits early. Right. And again, there's a connection there. We're not, This is not a young team where you're just learning how to be professionals and you're learning how to have those habits. We have to have those habits from day one, from tomorrow in Whistler, in training camp. We have to do all of the right things, preparing the right way, because that's the stage of your career you're at now. You're not learning to do those things. You should be able to do those things. And again, I thought it was interesting that those were paired together, right? We're not young anymore. We have to have the right habits. We have to do it right from the start of the season if we're going to get to where we want to get to. It's interesting. It's it's a big ask at this point for this team to arrive and be fully formed right from the get-go, performing like they did under Bruce Boudreau the last time around, right? There's a lot that has to go right. You know, this team was really good results-wise in that 57-game stretch, and yet one thing that buttressed them throughout last season was they had the number one save percentage in the league, 5-on-5, five going to be really hard to repeat that right it required a 950 from their third string goaltender over nine games like it required a lot of things that like some of that will be sticky because they've got Thatcher Demko Mm -hmm. who you know last year I proved I could be a starter this year I want to prove that I'm a top goaltender uh Thatcher you kind of already are a top goaltender and legends of the game say so I don't pay attention to that I still think there's another level I can get to I look at last you know the the perfectionist element of of Demko comes through in a significant way. So, you know, Demko's going to be really good. They're still going to be an above-average save percentage team. But number one, 
no team does that year over year, right? Like that's one thing that's going to be not against them, but unlikely to repeat. And that could expose some, some of the seams of their defense, particularly in the event that JT Miller's not able to level up the right. way that he said, particularly in the event that, you know, Oliver Ekman Larson and Tyler Myers, Tyler Myers in particular had the best defensive season of his career. Ekman Larson had the best defensive season he's had since he was 26, you know, they're a year older now, right? They have to maintain those gains. Quinn Hughes had his best defensive season of his career. He needs to maintain those gains, right? Like, there's a lot that's going to need to go right for this team to play or for this team to pay off on the habits that they're discussing, even if they 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 nail it, even if they show up tomorrow completely dialed to a man on those habits on that on the way they want to play, it's going to be really hard to repeat their defensive performance next season um, or their goal prevention performance next season. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm just fascinated to watch this play out because in a lot of ways, this team had the wind at their backs when they were at their best last season. That's not how an 82-game schedule works, right? You're going to have more um, uphill climbs. You're going to have moments where things roll against you. And sort of the mark between... A, an elite team, right, and and one that's not is are you able to accumulate enough points as a result of your habits, right? Are you are, as a result of your structure when everything goes awry that you're still 500 over a 10 game stretch, or you know you start the season and for whatever reason the puck's bouncing against you for 15 games, but you come out of it eight eight and you know uh, or seven seven and one as opposed to three ten and two and are still alive, right? Like, that's that's where it matters. I just think it's a big ask for this team to get to that level, considering their personnel. This text comes in, unsigned, 650-650. Uh, the young players better step up because Demko is not going to be the hero night in, night out, which ties in with what yeah, he you're might. saying, Drancer. He might. he might be, but you don't want to be relying on it and no. betting on it uh, every year, or every night, I should say. And or uh, every year, just as, yeah, every year as well. But as uh, as the topic of Thatcher Demko comes up, you know, he was he along with uh, Oliver Ekman Larson were the two people that we haven't heard from recently who spoke today. And with Thatcher Demko, I do think you know, not that he's he's not underappreciated, but you know, there's a reason we're we're over an hour, well over an hour into the show, and we haven't really talked about anything. Uh, he had to say today because he's just such a kind of dependable foundational part of the team at this point. And what did we hear from that Thatcher Demko today? It was again, just extremely professional, extremely focused, dialed in, you know, humble, all of those things that you would want uh, confident, but, but not arrogant. Right. I guess is a better way of saying it than, than humble. It was just classic Thatcher Demko. There was, okay. Yeah. He's just going to be Thatcher Demko. Uh, again this season. I, mean, I think the most notable thing that came out was that in 2011 he was cheering for the Canucks, even though he was in Boston. Do you watch the Josh Allen post-game avails? I can't say that I do. Okay, Josh Allen is so intense, and he's like so laser-focused, like Tom Brady used to be, mm-hmm. on not giving anybody bulletin board material, right? Like, he's like, you can see almost like the veins pop. Like, you know, this is a guy who can run 50 yards and throw three stiff arms against NFL linebackers and it doesn't look like he breaks a sweat. And then he's giving a simple answer in a press conference and you can see the concentration. I, I feel the same way about Thatcher Demko sometimes, right? Yeah. Where it's like, you know, he makes these spectacular saves look easy within a game. And then post game, he's so wired, right? So dialed. And even in this setting, he's so dialed, right? Um, you know, if we make the playoffs, when we make the playoffs right? Correcting himself, right? He doesn't, he's so deliberate 
in how he presents itself. And, and sort of one of the reasons, you know, you, you mentioned that Demko is under the radar, right? He really shouldn't be, right? He is this team's best He's player. phenomenal. He's their most important player. He's an NHL all-star. Like, there's no reason for Thatcher Demko to be under the radar, right? And yet, you know, one of the reasons that this is the first time we've heard from him is that he hasn't done anything. Like, he hasn't done media. He, he doesn't talk in the offseason. Even in season, he keeps his appearances brief. Uh, he's far more comfortable in a one-on-one setting than he is in a press conference setting. And, you know, I do sort of think that as he continues to establish himself as the face of this franchise, like, I don't think it's a stretch to say that we could be six months out from Demko being the unquestioned face of this franchise. The organization already talks as if that's the case, right? I mean... Jim Rutherford made no bones about what he thought about this team when he was hired. We have a great goal. We have a franchise goal. We have a franchise goal. Well, if you're going to begin to get Vesna consideration, if you're going to level up in terms of your profile around the league, you know, there are there is an extent to which you also have to do a little bit more and give a little bit more of yourself to the public in facilitating that rise to prominence, right? Um, this was something I worked on with uh, Sasha Barkov a bit. Most underrated player, TM. <laughs> um, it's it's a really important step and something that I'm curious to see if it evolves this season or if Demko continues to be demure in his approach to, you know, effectively being this team's most important or franchise level player. And really, the big question with Thatcher Demko this year is not even so much about Thatcher Demko. It's just more about the situation is how many games is he going to play and what's the plan to get him to that number? And even on that that question, right, it was, well, you can have a plan, but then the season happens. And, yeah, but you then know, you get punched in the mouth, right? Yeah, the then you get punched in the face, quote. basically. Yeah, and, and uh, who knows what will happen then. Well, yeah, but, right, 19 goalies played 15, 50 games or more last season, right? 16 of them either performed poorly got injured late in the season, or struggled mightily in the playoffs, right? The other three were Ilya Sorokin, Igor Shosturkin, and Andre Vasilevsky. And in Andre Vasilevsky's case, you know, I, I'm not sure he's human. So he's co- sort of more of a Borg. But, you know, the fact is, is that goalie rest, Demko's least favorite topic, right? He doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't want to discuss it. Um, typically, anyway. You know, I think it's a bigger factor than anyone is willing to grapple with. And yet players hate load management, right? Players hate it. They want to play. Like Thatcher Demko's a super competitive guy. He wants to play. He wants to play every night. You know, he says he said today, I've I've got a number in my head, but we'll see based on, you know, the season punching us in the mouth effectively. Yeah. Um well that number take that number and subtract it by ten. You know? Honestly, in terms of optimal deployment. Where you don't want to be is limping into the playoffs with an injured Demko, mm-hmm. right? If you want to win a round, or if you want to believe that anything can happen, it can't, but if you want to believe that it can... You need Demko. <laughs> anything definitely cannot happen if Demko's not healthy in round one. And not just healthy, at the absolute tip-top of his game. And that's another reason why the start to me is so important. Because once you get behind the eight ball, then the pressure to play your to ride your workhorse goal is just overwhelming. And then and then he got hurt. Yeah, you know. And then he got hurt. And you know, he he one thing I thought was interesting that he noted was the injury that he sustained late in the year almost forced him to take more rest. Great. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, he got on the ice early. He said, uh, 
Ian Clark goalies always get on the ice early, like steal on ice by August 1 is sort of a typical Ian Clark rule. It's something Roberto Luongo continued to uh, function under even after uh, Clark and him no longer were working together. So, you know, that's a that's a classic Ian Clark uh, player habit. Demko used the word inspiring a lot too. That's also, um, you know, him really imbibing Ian Clark's like lexicon, right? Inspire your teammates is part of what a goaltender in an Ian Clark system is supposed to do, right? And this is another sort of part of it. The demands of playing for Ian Clark, right? And these are demands that Demko wants, right? Demko stumped for the organization to retain Ian Clark for a reason, right? Um, Demko believes in him. He is, you know, fully bought in. He is fully bought into what the goalie uh, goalie coach is, um, is selling to the point that he, you know, apes a fair bit of his vernacular. The way Ian Clark talks about hockey is so distinct because he's clearly thought about what every word means, right? When, when Ian Clark uses the word inspiring, he means something very specific that's different from sort of the dewy-eyed, sure. um, you know, reaction you might have to someone using the word inspiring, right? Inspiring your teammates for Ian Clark means that you don't allow the goal that causes the bench to sag. And if you do, you don't allow it to shake you at all, right? It's, it, oh, wow, that went in. Everyone knows another one's not, right? Everyone knows another one's not, so everyone's going to work harder because of all the pucks that you save every every day to get that back, right? That's inspiring your teammates, right? And part of that, too, is showing up every day, and if you're banged up, which you get when you're a goaltender. It's an extraordinarily demanding physical position, right? Goalies lose like eight pounds of liquid over the course of a 60-minute <laughs> game. You know, like truly, it's, it's, it's almost a cruel thing to do to your body. Um, part of that, though, is if you're banged up, if you're feeling less than 100%, not only do you go out there and play, but you never show your teammates that you're fatigued, that you're hurt, that you're battling anything because you have to inspire your teammates. Like the standards that Ian Clark expects from his goalies, both from starting your year early through how you carry yourself, how you react to things when they go against you, how you react to things when they're going your way. Um, it's so exacting that I think the load management question gets even more important, more vital for this team, which sort of brings you to Spencer Martin and the fact that they've made a bet that I really like on a high pedigree goaltender who never really has had a shot to be an everyday NHL player. This is his first one-way contract, but as good as he was last year, you know, I think if you're building out sort of a workload plan that has any less than 25 Spencer Martin games, you know, that that's probably not putting Demko in the absolute best position. And, and by extension, it's certainly not putting this team in the best pos- position to, you know, have, have Demko at his best when the games really matter. Late in the year. 650, 650. April, not March, by the way. April, not March. April, May, even, potentially. (laughs) Uh, May, meaningful games in May. Uh, You heard it it here first. Um, 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Just uh, more for the sake of, well, not necessarily just for completion's sake, but uh, I did want to just touch on Oliver Ekman Larson's appearance quickly before we take a break here because I had to love it. It was basically just the Quinn Hughes appreciation session, right? Like the first question obviously is, well, what do you think about playing, uh, playing alongside Quinn Hughes? And his, his reaction was basically, are you kidding? Have you seen this guy? He's incredible. <laughs> who, who wouldn't, you could talk to anybody in the league and they'd say, yes, can I please play with the, Quinn Hughes? The, the verbatim, the verbatim quote at the end of that line was that sounds great. Yeah. Okay. 
That sounds great. Twist my arm. I guess I'll sign up for that. And even later in it was, you know, yeah, there's he started listing all of the things that Quinn can do that would help him out, right? His skating, his passing. It'll be great for me. I'll have more opportunities offensively. It's it's incredible. Yeah, he can play on the right side. He's just that good. So I I, I just really enjoyed that. I was interested. OEL has been a top defenseman in the NHL before, right? So to hear that kind of praise and, you know, just effusive commentary on Quinn Hughes was was cool. And maybe I missed this. Uh, miss this sort of classic Canucks Twitter reaction or, or what have you, but uh, I saw that EA Sports, Vancouver-based EA Sports, mm-hmm. um, the creators of Chell, NHL 2022, released their uh, rankings. And Quinn Hughes wasn't among the top 10 left defensemen in the league. Yes. Now, for years, when I was growing up anyway, right, the Canucks were always like the overrated team in EA because they are Vancouver-based, right? You'd, you'd sort of like load up the game and it would be like, Cody Hodgson's an 82. And it's like, oh, okay, <laughs> sure. Um, but now they're sleeping on Quinn Hughes. EA, what's happened to you? What's I, happened to you? You guys used to be homers. I could do like a whole hour on the NHL rating system. because it's, <laughs> it's, it's fundamentally broken, Drancer. Fundamentally broken. Wow, I'm we'll, not going that far. We'll, we'll save that I'm for I'm not going that far. Time. I'm just stunned that they've... Uh, I'm I'm just stunned that after decades of like overrating Canucks grinders, this team has an unbelievable like a a top fifteen defenseman, and they don't have him in the top ten among left side defensemen. I honestly, my eyes bulged out of my head. I was just like, "What's going on, EA?" Hey, Co- Cody Hodgson will be an eighty-two in my heart forever, Drancer. Hey, always, hey, always. Uh, just to go real acronym on this, EA talk to OEL. <laughs> That's my advice to you. Get his feedback. Yeah, on get his Hughes. feedback. You need it. All right. We'll come back. One final segment. We'll start to look ahead to tomorrow's uh, training camp, the opening of training camp in Whistler tomorrow for the Canucks. Some of the big questions, what we're excited to see, what we might learn from training camp for the Canucks. If you have any questions, things that stick out to you, hit us up. 650-650. Final segment of another extended Canucks hour coming up on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back. It is Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Canucks Insider Thomas Trance here as well for one final segment today. Next time we're on the air, it'll be live from Canucks Training Camp in Whistler tomorrow at 10 a.m. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota All-Star team, avenuemachinery.ca or douglaslakeequipment.com. Live here from the Kintech studio. Uh, 650 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Keep your thoughts coming in. And, you know, as we turn our attention now, Drancer, away from uh, primarily what we heard uh, from various Canucks at Rogers Arena today to what we might see, what we are curious to see over the next few days in Whistler, you know, one thing that, that stands out to me, and we've talked about this a little bit, is this training camp is, and, you know, the, the kind of classic battles to see who makes the roster. There's less and less of that around the NHL these days, I guess. You all you generally have a pretty good idea. But when I look at the Canucks and just, okay, who's likely to be on the opening night roster, it's so much more about how they're going to be configured than who will actually make the cut, for me at least. And there, there We can go down the list. There's, there's one. There's maybe there's a couple one. spots. There's one spot that I'm interested in. Only one. Okay. And it's Niels Hoaglander. I think that's very fair because you look at, you know, you count up the defensemen. There's a clear eight defensemen, and I would bet well, that they open with eight. So, sorry, there's one other decision that I think is interesting. When I unpacked the way that the Canucks might navigate cap-wise to get to the opening day lineup, right? 
to fit the Furland 3.5 million onto on LTI, mm-hmm. right? You want to get as close to 81.5 million as possible and then put it on because then you get the full capture or as close to the full capture as you can. And the best way to do it that I could figure out because you can't paper down Kuzmenko and, or sorry, yeah, Kuzmenko and Pod Colson because they have too many bonuses in their deal, right? They they have too many bonuses in their deals. Um, Jack Rathbone's an obvious one. Easy. You send him down, call him right back up. No problem. Uh, I think he's going to be on the 23-man roster. But no matter how I sort of slice it, I get to a point where Dickinson goes on waivers, right? Dickinson goes on waivers. He'll he'll be back up for the start of the season, but he goes through waivers, and you, you call him back up. And one of Dakota Joshua or Kyle Burrows. I can't get there any other way. I've tried. Hoaglander goes down. Rathbone goes down. Again, this is they, they still can be in the opening night roster. This has nothing to do with no, team no, no. construction. This is pure, pure salary cap machinations. Paper moves, right? But one of Joshua or Burroughs, the way that I see it, has to go on waivers in order for you to maximize your capture. Now, things can change. The Canucks could yet make a trade, right? The Canucks could claim a guy off waivers that would completely upend my logic. But the way that I look at it right now, one of those guys has to go on waivers. Now, Dakota Joshua was pursued by almost half the league for a contract. The Canucks won the bidding, so very likely there's teams that would have loved him on a one-year 750k deal, but maybe didn't like him so much in a two-year $1.65 million deal like the one that he signed in Vancouver. Um, Burroughs, however, is a relatively tough, average skating, right-handed defenseman, versatile enough to play both sides, played some forward last year. There's teams around the league that like him a lot. Like him a lot. Joshua's unlikely to make it through waivers. Kyle Burroughs, for me, is even less likely to make it through waivers. So I think there could be a tough decision there. I don't expect them to waive Joshua, right? Like, I don't expect them to waive Joshua. I think he's an integral part of their fourth-line plans. I think it would take a lot to dislodge him from that perch from a player like a Phil DiGiuseppe or a Sheldon Dries or, you know, perhaps one of the Canucks' young players. But when I look at Burroughs, like I think your chances of squeaking him through waivers unclaimed are extremely low. And if he is claimed, then you're riding on the right side with, sure, maybe one of the lefties moving over, but then Myers, Pullman, some Shen. some pretty significant durability concerns on on Pullman, I think. Shen too. And then what? Right? And then what? Like you could find yourself in a really tough spot really quickly. If you lose Burroughs and waivers. So those are the two that I'm like really looking at as, as interesting sort of factors here is I think they have to waive one of those guys for cap reasons. And I think they have a, a, a very fascinating decision to make with Niels Hoaglander. How do they navigate that? What would you, what would you do with Niels Hoaglander right now? Because I can understand the, okay, he needs to work on these details. Let's send him down to Abbotsford while he, while we has that, while we have that ability. But I also look at just how consistently he's created scoring chances for himself and his teammates at the NHL level as a young player. And I have a hard time wrapping my mind around not trying to get that in the lineup. I can't, I can't find six players that I want to play up front for the Canucks more than I want to play Niels Hoaglander. Yeah. So if I can't, if I think he's there, I think there's a case that he's their seventh, seventh best forward. So in a world where I think Niels Hoaglander is their seventh best forward, yeah, I'm I'm putting him on the NHL roster. It, it's just really hard, especially when we talked about you know the the over and over emphasis on we're we're trying to make the playoffs. We're not trying to you know this isn't about development or anything like that. It's about trying to make the playoffs. Well, 
he's one of your best forwards. He, he's clearly one of your 12 best forwards. I don't think there's any debate about that. And maybe the role, if you have him on the fourth line, isn't ideal. But you got to find a way to get him on the ice. I'm open to the argument, though, that the club would have been far better off having a level of depth where he didn't have to play the way that he did that first season in particular, but arguably the second one as well, right? In a world where you'd done the obvious and just extended to Foley, right? Niels Hoaglander's probably not playing until late in that 2021 season uh, and then would have sort of come into camp the next year having to dislodge another guy, like in almost in a like a, a Will Lockwood style, like training camp dark horse, Nils Hoaglander showed well in the NHL, crushed the AHL. Because here's the other thing. You put Nils Hoaglander in the American League, Oh, he's going off. Yeah. He's going off, like, point per game plus for sure. Is it beneficial to have him play 22 minutes a night? Uh, maybe even kill some penalties? Like, really work on the all-around aspect of his game and be sort of uh, groomed to be a top six forward? For sure. Is it potentially too late? That's sort of where you have the rubber meet the road. Like, Niels Hoaglander's production in the first two years of his entry-level deal granted a lot of it came in that first season, is very much in line with guys like Dylan Dubé, guys like Philip Heedle in New York. Well, those are $2.5 million second contract guys. Like, what do you do to the relationship if you don't give him an opportunity to continue that? I mean, you could cost him a million, a million and a half dollars. That's like, my big question. That becomes personal. It's really... It's tough to do it in reverse. It's one thing to, you know, hey, we're going we're gonna to slow cook you in the AHL, get you your seasoning, and then when totally. you come up, you'll be ready. It's really hard to reverse engineer that process. I... Look, I know Yannick Hansen has been on the station a lot talking about how much better it would have been for Niels Hoaglander to have that seasoning in the AHL. Yes, completely agree, but it's not as simple as, okay, well, well then put him in the AHL now, right? Because he's already shown certain things. As you said, there's the relationship to consider. That can be a also just even beyond the relationship and the financial, that can be a big blow to a player's ego, right? All of a sudden, hey, I've established myself as an NHL regular. I can put up points, and now you're sending me down to the AHL. That, that, that can be tough to take. He'll have a chance to decide some of it, too, over the coming days, and that's going to make him one of the most fascinating subplots of training camp, right? Is what sort of um, like stake can he, what does he claim do? yeah. over the course of the next few, uh, few weeks? But, you know, the echoes of some of what Vancouver did to weather the pandemic, right, are still being felt by the organization. You're going to see it in a big way at training camp. You have Mike DiPietro abandoning his number for number 64. Uh, we all sort of have a sense of where that one's going, whether or not he uh, ends up being dealt in fact or ends up in the ECHL or, or something. I mean, that's a really murky situation, and you can draw a straight line from the club's handling of the pandemic to that. Same goes with Niels Hoaglander. Um, you know, this is something that new management's going to be managing around probably for another few years here for, for a variety of reasons. I, I, you know, the, the Pedersen Bridge would be part of that equation as well. So, you know, it's going to take some digging up. <laughs> it's going to take some digging up. But, yeah, the Niels Hoaglander storyline is one of the most fascinating ones. And in terms of who makes the roster, those are sort of the two pressure points that I'm keeping an eye on um, ahead of training camp. But, yeah, I agree with you. Having spent 12 minutes disagreeing with you, <laughs> I agree with you that the more interesting thing is who plays with who yeah. and exactly how Bruce Boudreaux decides to fit it all together. And and I think we can get more into that. I mean, we'll see. We'll have some evidence, some really interesting evidence, I think, by the time we're, we're on the air tomorrow uh, in Whistler. The other thing that stands out to me is how the penalty kill is going to function this year. Mm -hmm. And that's something that ties into 
the new coaching staff, right? Because the penalty kill was kind of handed off multiple times over the course of last season, right? With Scott Walker coming in with Bruce Boudreau and then Walker had to step away. So there had to be another change and, and uh, Brad Shaw had to take over more responsibilities on the penalty kill. Another standout uh, kind of clip or takeaway from the media availabilities today was Bo Horvat talking about how much he likes penalty killing and also specifically how much he enjoyed doing it with Elias Pettersson last season. And that was a bright spot late in the season for me as well to see those two work together and, and help the team uh, on that side of special teams. And, you know, we talked yesterday, Drancer, about, look, they should have one very, very good, very good special teams unit, right? How they choose to go about crafting, a, you know, aiming for an average penalty killing unit, right? Who's the personnel? How many different guys do they get involved? Is Pedersen, are Pedersen and Horvat still features there? Will Hughes see time on the penalty kill? All of those questions. Because again, as you talk about, you know, is the five on five save percentage going to be there? You can't necessarily, uh, you can't necessarily rely on it to the same degree they did last year. But one of the ways to offset some regression in that is to dramatically improve your penalty kill from where it was for long stretches last season. That's another area of the roster where, yeah, it's probably more about configuration than who makes the team, but it's something that I think is going to be really fascinating to see how it develops over training camp. Yeah, it, there's um, there's a lot of storylines that are going to develop over the course of training camp. One thing, one thing that I don't expect to see. So let's, what do we expect to see? What do we not expect to see? Right, and we'll go over it. So day one, group A, group B, and then a scrimmage. Yeah. So we talked about this a little bit yesterday, but. Group A gets rest. Group B plays a scrimmage very shortly after their practice session. Group A wins scrimmage one. <laughs> Always, every time. Then they reverse, and Group B wins scrimmage two. Always, every time. So those are <laughs> – now, obviously anything can happen mm-hmm. at scrimmages <laughs> at training camp. Not in the playoffs. But, uh, but you know, we'll see, we'll see sort of – that's one thing to expect right off the bat. These scrimmages are – tend to pit one tired team against a more rested team uh, with predictable results. Um, Boudreaux implied uh, a bunch of stuff about some of the decisions he's looking at, including uh, keeping that Tristan Nielsen... Waters and Klimovich. Yeah, yeah. Chase Waters, Danila Klimovich line together, which is dead on. They were so good together. There's something there. And I'm sure Jeremy Colleton will be... It'll be music to his ears, too, that those guys get a chance to really learn... Uh, how to play and complement one another even further, although the immediate returns out of Penticton were were through the roof. Um, you know, the the right pair thing, like the the Hughes-OEL thing, I, I'm still expecting to see both guys play the right side. I'm still expecting to see both guys take some reps on the right side as they figure it out, but it certainly feels like we're trending towards seeing that um, at training camp itself. And then, you know, I'm really curious, like, you typically, Group A and Group B, they typically take the ice with one goal each, mm-hmm. right? One for each net. There's only two nets on the ice. So is DiPietro in the third group? We'll be reading a lot into that. Exactly the composition of, um, of, of that part in particular is going to speak volumes. And then because Boudreaux told us four nights that project to look like uh, opening night lines – I mean, we're going to know a lot if we see Niels Hoaglander start on a line with Niels Amon and, um, you know, uh, Phil DiGiuseppe. That, that's like sort of the dark horse line, right? That's that's sort of another thing that I'm going to be watching closely is how much exactly 
can we read into these lines and what do they tell us about the pecking order? I think um, Andre Kuzmenko's position and all that is going to be fascinating as well. And, and Boudreaux talked about putting him on the left, putting him on the left side, but also just who he's playing with. And he is the, you know, he is that X factor, right? Nobody knows exactly what you're going to get from him. We heard it from JT Miller today. Hey, he has such a high skill level, but it's going to be different. You know, it's different doing it at captain skates, even to training camp, and then obviously to preseason and the regular season. You know, Bruce Boudreaux echoed some of those similar things. Really high skill level, different pace. Well, and, and focused on, on the pace of the games, but also, you know, Kuzmenko's foot speed is going to be, you know, there's a lot of players like this. Like Linus Carlson's another one, like, Olio Levy, I always said this about Olio Levy, right? His feet are going to determine what he is, right? Kuzmenko is not a burner, but he needs to be an average skater mm-hmm. at the NHL level if he's going to really play a big role, particularly if he's going to play a big role on a line with a guy like JT Miller or Bo Horvat, who's likely to get really tough defensive assignments. But sounds like he'll start on the left. So I think we can imply that he's not going to be on a line with Garland, probably not with Tanner Pearson. So you can kind of figure it out. I'm really curious to see what wingers those three centermen start with. It's going to speak volumes. It, it really is. And again, we, we should have a, a better sense of that um, I, I when think, they take the ice tomorrow. I, I don't have any sense of this in terms of internal information. Uh, I pride myself on, on getting as much, particularly about these sorts of decisions as I can. Um, you know, I, I feel like the, the right side, the lefty on the right side thing has been something I've been talking about since what? May sure right like I really try and stay abreast of this type of organizational thinking one of my priorities but so I don't have that sense here and yet I want to make a prediction which is I think we're going to see Pearson Miller Besser well there was a moment today where Bruce Boudreaux was kind of talking about how things work and even in preseason and I think he said you know we, oh, if, if we decide to sit Miller out of a preseason game, we don't want to put Besser in there, uh, you know, to play, right? Because we want to keep these trios together. And it's the kind of thing that could have been just an off-the-top-of-his-head example, or it could be an indication of the way he's leaning. And that was a line that had a lot of success they last year when so they were together. Good. They were so good down low, and they did something that Vancouver really struggled to generate with any other line, which was... You know, in big minutes against top competition, they spent a lot of time grinding teams along the wall, down low, and in the offensive end. And when you can grind down an opposition's best matchup line, grind down an opposition's best matchup pair with any sort of consistency at the top end of your lineup, it creates easier sledding for everyone else down the lineup, right? Like everything else can begin to fall into place because the opposition's best players are tired. They can't double shift. There's all sorts of sort of, um, you know, butterfly effect things that help you win the game, that help you win the game. And so, you know, that's one thing that I expect to see. I expect to see that line reprise its role as, you know, Boudreaux's most reliable territorial winner, uh, you know, at least to begin training camp tomorrow. So that's that's one thing I expect to see. Again, not based on intel, not even based on me reading between. I, I didn't catch that snippet. That's good sleuthing yeah. yes, by, yes. by you, Mr. Dodd. But I do expect to see that just because there, there's no other trio you can put together that makes as much sense in terms of being a safe bet to create that environment for for that line, but also for the rest. And of the it's game. another th- it's another line where you have two of the wingers that you're really you really trust defensively together, mm-hmm. right? And so that gives you a certain amount of trust in that line. Obviously, especially doubly so if if JT Miller takes those 
uh, steps forward as a 200 foot player that he was talking about today. And you know, that's if you just start to think about, okay, well, what what does that mean for the rest of how the forward group is going to set up? And you also work with the Connor Garland is going to play on the left side. I wonder if it's then you know Horvat with Garland on the left and Mikheyev on the right, and then you would have Pedersen, Podkolzin, Kuzmenko. No, Pearson's up with oh, right, with Miller course, and Besser, yeah, so right? So you have Pedersen, Podkolzin, Kuzmenko, and kind of a lower stakes. You know, we're not going to ask you to play those tougher minutes. We're going to ask you to go out there and produce and score. Not necessarily what I want to see from Pedersen, but I also understand the logic of uh, putting him in a really advantageous Pe- offensive Pedersen, situation. Pedersen, Podkolzin sounds fun, especially if oh, they're yeah. especially if they're. Uh, you know, like a scoring line with a pass-first right-handed left winger. I mean, that sounds fun. I have I have time for that. I have a lot of time for that. I want to talk about one more thing. Bruce Boudreau reiterated his confidence in his team's defense, talking about the club being, uh, what, fifth in goals yeah. against while he was there. Now, there's some confusion about what I mean anyway or what people who talk about the Canucks' defense being an issue are actually getting at, right? And and the way that I think about it, it's like this. Increasingly, I believe that having a defense that can move the puck and play with the requisite two-way IQ is akin to having a really good offensive line in football, right? It's it's It creates an environment where, and we see this every year with both the Avs and the Florida Panthers, you know, those are two of the best puck-moving defense groups in the league. Florida, maybe not so much anymore, by the way, right? Florida's sort of weaker in that area. Like, if you're talking about the weaker departure and what it might mean for them, it's like they've lost their best left tackle, mm. right? Now, but but what happens with Colorado? Well, Jonas Donskoy in, 50 points, you know? Whoever comes in looks great, right? The Darren Helm, like, Our yeah, Terry sure. when he comes over, right. yeah. Darren Helm, sure. Darren Helm's amazing. 10 goals, you know, 15 or 25-point fourth line center now, sure, you know? They can cycle pl- people in, and they all look great because they all have time. They all they all get crisp passes. Uh, they don't spend a ton of time defending. They're always attacking. And we've seen, too, historically, like when a team really levels up quickly behind a group of skilled forwards, you know, when you think about the Edmonton rebuild and the New York Islanders rebuild or like some of those more fitful processes mm-hmm. that have taken forever, um, you know, there's a common theme. Plotting defense groups, Right. When you think about the teams that leveled up fast, I think about Austin Matthews' first year with the Toronto Maple Leafs where you had, like, Riley and Gardner and Zaitsev. Like, you had D who could move. Um, when you think about the LA Kings last year, right, and you have that, like, eight different defensemen, all of whom can move. Um, you know, it's not about what the – like, I think the Canucks have a lot of defensemen who play pretty well in zone, right? Like, Tyler Myers played his best defensive season. I went over it earlier in the show. Oliver ekman Larson, Pullman's. Really good in his own end. Luke Shen, fantastic in-zone defender. Where Vancouver is held back, in my view, by their defense, is that they don't move the puck well enough offensively. It's more about a holistic view of how they can play. It's not about goal prevention numbers. Like, when I when I say I'm not sure the Canucks have enough on defense, I'm not talking about they're going to get lit up defensively every night, although historically that's been part of the issue. It's more about can the defense facilitate transition offense can they how can they facilitate an environment where the Canucks are more likely to score the next goal or once again are Canucks forwards going to be almost wholly dependent on what they can create themselves on the forecheck in terms of manufacturing really dangerous offensive opportunities even when the team was doing well toward the end of last season punt and hunt right it was the game was disconnected from the back end to up front 
I'm not sure that thing's been addressed. And so Boudreaux talked about the goal prevention. I think this team has the capability to be an above-average defensive team, particularly when you factor Thatcher Demko's puck-stopping excellence into the equation. It's more about the connection from the back to the front and the ability to attack as a five-man unit, or are the Canucks once again going to be almost exclusively reliant on the forecheck to manufacture their best offensive opportunities? That's what I mean when we talk about that. I'm very curious to see how it looks once they hit the ice. We will end on that note for today. Again, tomorrow and Friday and Saturday, live from Canucks training camp in Whistler. The People's Show with Bick Nazar and Randy Janda is up next. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.